All right. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, this week we are wrapping up our Great Adventure sermon series. Um, I want to invite you back next week. Next week we're going to be kicking off a new sermon series called I Am. We're going to be looking at um, seven statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. They're provocative, they are profound, and they have deep meaning for us. Crazy things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And as we unpack these things and listen to Jesus in his own words, um, we come to know who he is, and we, and we discover more about his mission. And I think as we discover more about him, honestly, we discover more about ourselves. As we come to know him as he is, we are free to come to know ourselves as we were created to be. And so I invite you to come back next week as we move into this new sermon series. Really excited about that. Um, This week, we are wrapping up our Great Adventure series. So grab your Bibles. We are going to 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. Um, So open up your apps, grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one off of the floor in front of you. And turn to page First Peter, or, or page, uh, to First Peter three. That is page ten sixteen in our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, um, we welcome you to take the one that is on the floor in front of you. We would love for that to be our gift to you. Anything we can do to get the Word of God into your hands and equip you to read it and study it would be our privilege. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to First Peter, chapter three. Uh, we'll be looking at. Um, verses 13 through 18. All right, starting in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, the word of the Lord. Uh, let me, would you guys pray with me before we dig in. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word, to dig in. Spirit, I pray that you would once again soften our hearts and prepare us for what you have. Um, Lord, I trust that you, um, as you always do, will um, do what only you can do, which is to open the spiritual eyes of our understanding, allow us to see what is real and lasting, um, what is meaningful. Free us, Lord, from the lies that enslave us and into the truth that sets us free. Father, I pray that um, you'll continue to use your word to mold our hearts, our church, our presence in this community. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys, we are in the final um, sermon of the Great Adventure series. We've been talking about the gospel, and I've uh, been talking about why we should believe it, um, how we apply it, and how and why we should share it, right? Specifically, um, we've been entrusted this incredible message, and how it's incredibly important that we recognize that this message was given to us to be shared. Last week, we talked about how when you become a follower of Jesus— Scripture says you actually become an ambassador for Christ, an official messenger 
who has been entrusted a message, right? And that message was given to us to share with others. We are God's plan A for the distribution and spread of this message. Now, here's the thing. Last week, we talked about why we share our faith, and we looked at the compelling reasons. Today, I want to talk a little bit about how, and and to do that, we need to talk about why we don't, because the reality is all of us struggle some of the time, and some of us struggle all of the time to do this well. Um, It can be challenging, right? So, So what keeps us from sharing our faith? What keeps us um, from telling others about Jesus. Now, here's the thing, you guys. I'm not asking what keeps us from believing it. I know that there are some folks here this morning who um, are just checking this out, and, and maybe you're not sure about this stuff, right? And, and I want to assure you that, that our faith is both um, reasonable and rational. And I encourage you to dig in and ask questions. And, and, and this is a safe place and a great place to have conversations and to do that digging. But this morning, I want to talk to those of you who believe, if you believe, if you are a follower of Christ, why don't you tell others about it? If you are a follower of Jesus, why can it be so difficult to be an ambassador for the God that you follow? You guys, we live in the overlap of the ages. We've talked about this in the previous weeks. The old age is passing away. The new age has come and is being realized, right? When when Christ died and rose again, he initiated a new humanity, a new creation, right? A a whole new start for the created order in, in which we can have hope, right? And we look at this new age dawning and we recognize that in this current time, we are ambassadors of this age to come. We are the representatives of the age that is dawning. Those who have tasted the beginning of forgiveness and restoration, we become ministers of reconciliation, agents of, of God's reconciliation, right? God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and we become the agents of that reconciliation in the world. We are the presence of the love of God. We are the voice of the love of God. We're sent by the God who has paid the price for our reconciliation to tell others the good news, that there is, in fact, forgiveness, a new start, recreation. So why don't we do it? Why don't we share our faith? I've asked a lot of people this over the years. I've had a lot of conversations, and I've had plenty of time to look into my own heart. As I've looked at my own struggles to share my faith, uh, my own difficulties in doing that, in talking to others, I've come up with some fairly common answers. Things that, that, that are like this, right? Someone will tell me, it's because it's, it's I, don't, I don't know enough. I just don't feel qualified, right? Maybe when I know more. Maybe when I have better understanding. Maybe when I've, 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 I've learned enough that, that I feel confident, right? Or others will come and say, you know, I, I just don't think I really have my act together enough. I struggle in all these areas. You know, I got all this sin in my life and I've got all this, this stuff that's messed up, right? Um, people are going to see that and they're going to think I'm a hypocrite. And I'm going to feel like a hypocrite. And, and, and so I'm going to wait until I get my, my, my stuff together. I'm going to wait until I, I have it all in line, right? Other people will say, you know what? Um, I'm afraid that, that I'm not going to be able to answer people's questions. People are going to have questions about things that are technical or challenging, and I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to look dumb. I'm afraid that I'm, I'm going to make a poor representative, that I won't be able to be as smart or as intelligent as, as these other people I hear. Other people tell me they're afraid of, of having people think, 
oh, you're one of those people, right? Oh, you're one of those people. And nobody wants to be one of those people, whoever they are, right? Whatever that is in your head. Maybe it's the, the Westboro Baptist guys out there with their, their hate-filled protest signs. I don't want to be associated with, with those people. And so I, I just kind of keep quiet because um, I'm afraid what people will think. And I, I, don't want to be, I don't want to be seen as intolerant or judgmental. And I don't want to, come, I don't want to be associated with, with those people that, that get so much publicity in our culture that, that, that are just poor representatives of Christianity. Some of you, the bottom line is you'll just say, I, I just don't know what to say. I just feel awkward. I tried once, and it just didn't go real well. <laughs> it was, I, I, I pushed into the awkwardness, and it only got more awkward. And by the time we were done, I was glad it was done, and they were glad, and I just never want to go back, right? All right, here's the thing, you guys. I, I'm guessing you can relate with one or some or all of these in one way or another. There's a lot of things that get in the way of us being good ambassadors. Um, but I think all of these things have one common root. And that common root, honestly, is fear. Underlying all of these concerns is fear. The Bible calls it fear of man. Here's the, the reality is, I mean, no one likes to be made fun of. No one likes to be belittled. No one likes to have their faults pointed out. Nobody likes to be made to be made feel like they're dumb or rejected or and nobody likes to be abused. And so we're afraid. And so we remain silent because when we remain silent it helps us avoid the thing that we are afraid of. You guys I want you to see that this is not a modern problem. <laughs> it's a human problem. The apostle Paul who is potentially one of the boldest dudes in the New Testament. Crazy, right? He regularly asked believers to pray for him, specifically that he would have boldness in the gospel. He struggled with fear. He struggled with, with um, uh, saying the clear thing at the right time, right? Peter had his own struggles with boldness. If you know Peter's story in the New Testament, I'm not going to unpack it, but he's a guy who at critical times faltered in his boldness and actually acted in cowardice, right? And the people that he's writing to in, in, in 1 Peter are struggling with it as well. Um, these are people that, that um, were afraid to be good witnesses, afraid to be good ambassadors um, because they're living in environments that don't welcome it. They're living in environments that are somewhat hostile. And Peter's message to them and Peter's message to us very simply is this, that the gospel will free you from fear and empower you to share your hope. The gospel, the very message we're called to share is the very thing that will remove your fear and empower you to share your hope. So our question this morning, how do we become good ambassadors? How do we overcome this fear and become effective? Well, first of all, we don't want to share the wrong kind of fears, okay? Peter is writing to a, a, Jew, a group of, of Jewish Christians who um, came under persecution where they were, and, and they ended up being distributed or dispersed uh, into surrounding regions. And so they're out there in, in um, these areas with new places, new cultures, and they're going to stick out, right? I mean, they're, they're moving into areas where there aren't a lot of Jews, 
And even the Jews that are there are going to be practicing Judaism. And so they're, they're Jewish by, by heritage and they're Christians by faith. And, and so they're, they're just kind of like sore thumbs. They stick out wherever they go. And, and as they move out into these new places and these new cultures, um, they're going to end up talking about their identities in Christ. They're going to be talking about their faith. And they're going to find there are some people in these communities that are interested. There are some people that want to engage it and, and, and are, hey, that's interesting or compelling or some are going to be eager. Others, not so much. Right? There are going to be some people that feel threatened by, by these Jewish Christians coming into their community. There are going to be people, people who feel annoyed. There are going to be people who even feel angry at their presence, right? Who are you to come into our community and disrupt our rhythms and talk about new things? And as a result, they tried to shut these believers down. They basically tried to to silence them, right? In verse 14, Peter's advice is this. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. How do you like commandments like this? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have you ever tried to command your emotions? How's that work for you? Stop being afraid. Okay. Right? Stop being happy. I'm done being happy. Right? Stop being whatever it is, anxious. Right? You, you can't just command your emotions. Emotions are byproducts of something much deeper going on right? The reality is we can come to be aware of our emotions so that we're not controlled by them, but it's incredibly difficult to control our emotions, right? So what does he mean when he says, have no fear of them, right? That's like almost an impossible command. In a sense, like if somebody's threatening you, if you're in imminent danger, and then someone comes along and they're just like, well, don't be afraid. It's like, yeah, thanks, right? I mean, that's not incredibly helpful, well, here's the thing. I think we, we lose a little bit in translation. The phrase, have no fear of them, in the Greek, is, is actually a, a little bit enigmatic. And, and, and um, commentators will come down on different areas. We all agree it means the same thing, but we nuance it a little bit differently. Literally, it says, do not share their fear. And I would take that to mean, honestly, that, that Peter is saying, don't be afraid of the same things they're afraid of. Don't be afraid of the same things they're afraid of. Let the gospel inform your hope in such a way that you aren't driven by the same fears as those who don't believe in Jesus. Because when you fear the same things, people know how to manipulate you. When you fear the same things, people know how to persecute you. See, when you talk about the heart of persecution, you're talking about fear. We don't have a lot of overt persecution in Edwardsville. Let's be honest. Not a lot of overt persecution in the Metro East. There's not a lot of news about, about people losing their lives, um, you know, being tossed out of their homes, um, being driven out of their communities. That, that sort of stuff isn't happening here. But that doesn't mean that we don't still need to deal with the heart of persecution. I mean, think about it, you guys. What is Persecution. Persecution is a threat that something you need will be taken from you or something you can't handle will be given to you unless 
Isn't that what it is? Persecution is I'm, I'm going to take something from you you need, or I'm going to give you something you can't handle unless you do what I want you to do. Unless you stop saying that thing or start saying this thing or stop looking that way or start looking, right? Middle school students are experts in persecution. Are they not? I will give you something you can't handle. I will take something from you you can't give up unless you wear the same tennis shoes as I do, right? I mean, it's really silly stuff, but it's, it's, it's this, we, we, we label it peer pressure, right? Now, it's kind of hard to, to label that stuff as persecution because the reality is there are people around the world right now, Christians who are being persecuted in the sense that they're losing their lives. The amount of persecution, honestly, against Christians worldwide um, is, is incredibly high. All you have to do is tune in a little bit to the news to see the number of countries and places where people are losing their lives, losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods, being driven out of their homes. That's extreme forms of, of persecution. But the reality is less extreme forms can be just as effective. Threats against your reputation. Uh, threats against um, your emotional well-being. It's manipulative. And what it does is, is the persecutor is assuming a common set of values. They're assuming that you have the same fears they have. And if you actually share their fears, their persecution is incredibly effective because they know how to push your buttons. They know how to pull your strings. They know how to motivate you with their threat, right? If I know what you're afraid of, I can control your behavior. But what if you aren't afraid of the same things? <laughs> you know, martyrs confound their murderers. Martyrs um, confuse everybody, <laughs> right? The first martyr in the New Testament is a guy named Stephen. He was a believer in the early church, and he was sharing his faith in Jesus and um, this new faith about Jesus was upsetting communities. Like too many people were becoming believers and, and, and people who are culturally Jewish were feeling threatened. And, and it was like, who are you people? You're turning the world upside down. And, and so in rage, what they decided to do was, was they attempted to stop the spread of early Christianity by martyring, by killing Stephen. So they took Stephen and they, and they drug him out of the city and they threw stones at him to try to silence him, to try to discredit him, to try to strike fear into the heart of other believers, right? They were acting in rage and they were acting in fear themselves with the hope that this act of persecution will put an end to the spread of Christianity. Now, here's the thing about Stephen. When you read the account, he never stopped talking about Jesus. I mean, even as they're murdering him, he's like, I see Jesus seated in the heavens inviting me. I know where I'm going. I'm not afraid. See, Jesus was with him in that suffering. God enabled him to be a testimony of grace. He didn't turn to anger. He didn't turn to bitterness. He didn't lash out in fear. He didn't. He just died boldly. Why? Because he didn't fear what they feared. He knew death wasn't the end of life. It was just the end of this phase of life, right? This is the guy who saw Jesus die and rise again 
right? If Jesus rose from the dead, what that means is that it changes the way we look at death. It's not the end of the story. He himself would rise again based on the promise of Jesus who rose from the dead. And so in that hope, it changed the way he suffered. He didn't fear what they feared. doesn't mean he enjoyed what they did. It doesn't mean that suddenly that was pleasant, but it does mean that their fear wasn't his fear. And as a result, it completely changed the dynamic of the suffering. You know, one of the guys that was there that day during the stoning was a young guy named Saul. He was holding the coats of those who were actually throwing the rocks. He was observing and watching this whole thing. Saul later became a believer and was renamed Paul, one of the most uh, prolific preachers of the gospel in the New Testament. Now, we don't, we don't find out exactly how this event impacted him, but I have to guess it did. That he was watching Stephen suffer and die. And it wasn't going down like he thought it should. He watched a guy die with, with boldness. A guy who didn't, who didn't share his fear. I'm guessing that rattled his cage. I'm guessing that shook him up a little bit. Not only that, other believers were watching. And what you saw come out of this was, in fact, a surge of boldness in the sharing of the gospel. Other people, um, oh, I forget who said it. It's a great line, though. A brave man stiffens the spines of those around him, right? Stephen's faith ignited the faith of people all around him. And suddenly they were praising and, and singing. And even as they were beaten, they were praising that they were worthy to suffer for the gospel in the same way Christ suffered for the gospel. Their fear wasn't the same as the fear of unbelievers. And so it ended up confounding those who persecuted them. And the persecution actually became seeds for the spread of the gospel. If you don't fear the things they're afraid of, they are unable to manipulate you and control you. As they seek to silence you or to put words into your mouth, you're not under their control. So how can you be free? How can you have a fear that is fundamentally different from their fear? How can you be motivated in such a different way? Well, here's the thing. If you're not going to share their fears, bottom line is you need to have a different Lord. If you're not going to share their fears, you need to have a, a different Lord, right? Take a look at verse 15. Verse 14 says, but if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them. Do not share their fear, nor be troubled. Don't be intimidated. Verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I need to unpack this. Um, the heart. The heart in, in the New Testament isn't just where you feel things, right? We talk about, um, I love you with all my heart. What, what we mean by that is I have a tremendous amount of emotion wrapped up in this. When we speak of the heart, we often see, speak of the, the seat of emotions, um, in the New Testament mind, when they spoke about the heart, it wasn't just the seat of the emotions. It was also the seat of the, the volition or the will. It was the seat of the values. It was, it was who you are. So when it talks about your heart, it's talking about the core of what motivates you and shapes you and makes you you, right? It's the center of your being at the very center of who you are. What he's saying is at the very center of who you are. 
that place that influences not just your emotions, but also your decisions and your wills and your values and, and your choices, right? At the very center of who you are, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That word honor uh, in the Greek literally means sanctify, a word that means to set apart. So some versions will actually say that, set apart Christ as Lord um, as, as holy, right? What's interesting is the word holy also means to set apart. <laughs> something that is holy is something that is set apart um, from sin uh, for glory, set apart from dishonorable use for honorable use. Something that is purely holy is something that's completely set apart from anything that's degrading. So basically you have this statement, Jesus Christ is Lord, bookended by two statements that say set him apart. as <laughs> completely set apart, right? Set him apart as completely Set apart. You're like, Steve, you are not making this any more clear. Um, all right. Think about this. What do you set apart? What do you set apart? Lauren has a set of plates that she loves. They're false graph and they've got tulips on them. And um, they are set apart. They come out on special occasions, right? Those, those, are the, those are the dishes that she loves to use but doesn't use very often. We don't have a, a huge set of them, so we can't use them in big entertaining, but she loves them. Um, right? So they are set apart. I love pens. I know I'm weird. Um, but I love a good pen, right? I don't know about you, but I love a good pen. And if I find a good pen, it finds its way into my backpack. Hopefully it's not somebody else's, but it tends to find its way into my backpack. And I have a, a little slot where I keep my pen, right? I like a good pen. So I set it apart, right? It doesn't mean it's set apart so it doesn't get used. It means it's set apart because you value it. It's set apart because you delight in it. You set it apart because it is unique and special to you, right? It may not be unique and special to others, but it is to you. It is, it is your favorite, right? So whether you use it occasionally or use it daily, it's still set apart to be protected so that when you, when you, when you want to delight in it, it's there to be delighted in. See, we set things apart that we find uniquely valuable. We set things apart that we find delight in. And Peter is saying, you need to choose to set Jesus as Lord apart in your heart, in your will, in your values, as uniquely valuable, uniquely delightful. See, not just Jesus is an idea, not just your favorite thought of Jesus, right? We're not talking about like Talladega Nights where you get to choose your favorite Jesus. My favorite Jesus is baby Jesus, right? It's, it's, we're not talking about your favorite hippie Jesus or your favorite loving Jesus or your favorite Jesus who loves to meet people who are broken. We're talking about Jesus as Lord, it says, honor Jesus as Lord. Jesus the Lord is as holy, right? You are to delight in love and in grace, but you are also to delight in his power and his authority. So what does this look like in practical terms? Well, here's the thing. We're always going to honor something as Lord in our hearts. Always. We will always honor something as Lord in our hearts. What I mean by that is we will always look to something to meet our deepest needs and guide our deepest decisions. We are being told to purposefully challenge our hard assumptions with the hope of the gospel. 
we are to purposely challenge our heart's assumptions about what is meaningful, what is valuable, what brings the greatest reward with the hope of the gospel. So Stephen, Stephen was tempted to believe a lie. His heart, I have no doubt, told him a lie, which essentially was, you have to stay alive to be happy. (laughs) You have to stay physically alive to be okay, right? There's, there's something about human nature that basically says, I like life, right? I want to stay alive. And I have no doubt that there was a lie planted in him that basically said, protect physical life at all costs. And instead, he challenged his hard assumptions, the lies that were tempted to enslave him and, and brought the gospel in. No, we're all going to die. There's something more valuable than physical life. There's something more valuable than simply living another year or month or 10 years. There is something more valuable than protecting my physical well-being. And that deeper value will guide my behavior. See, maybe for you, your deeper assumption is that maybe, maybe you have to have a job or make a certain amount of money to be okay. I have to have this job. I have to have this success. I have to have this cer- certain amount of money. Um, or, or I'm not going to be okay, right? And what ends up happening is your job becomes your Lord. Your income becomes your Lord, and you start protecting it and delighting it. You set it apart in your heart as holy, and it becomes what influences your deepest decisions, your values, your choices. And so you'll do anything to protect your job or to get ahead financially. See, the gospel comes in and allows me to say, you know what? No, I, I love my job. I delight in my work. I enjoy success, but my work and my money are not my God. I will not look to my success to give me what only God can give. I will not look to my work to do for me what only God can do. It is not my Lord. God provides for my needs. God is the one who gives me purpose. God is the one who defines success. When I sanctify Christ, the Lord, is holy in my heart, what I'm saying is I will believe what he says instead of the lie that seeks to entrap me. Maybe it's your family or your freedom, right? Maybe, maybe your heart tells you, my family has to be okay for me to be okay. My kids have to succeed or behave a certain way in public or be on the honor roll or whatever it is. Or maybe it's your lack of kids, your freedom, right? I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, right? Maybe it is your devotion to freedom and, and this becomes your Lord. You sanctify this as Lord in your heart and you, you start revolving around it saying, when my family's okay, I'm okay. Or, or when my freedom is protected, my joy is protected. See, the gospel comes in and says, no, it is not your family. It is not your freedom. It's your relationship with God through Christ that makes you okay, that gives you security, that frees you to joy. It's not that the other things aren't good things. They're just not ultimate things. They're not God things. God is sanctified as Lord in your heart, as holy. And so your kids, your family, your freedom, they're God's first, not your first God. So you come to trust God with your family. You come to trust God with your job. You come to trust God with your fear. My freedom is awesome, but even more awesome is the God who gives me freedom, right? 
What I look for in my freedom, pleasure, or joy, or opportunity really comes from God. I recognize, again, God is Lord. Maybe for you, it's personal approval. A specific person or everybody's, right? You just love it when people approve of you and they tell you how wonderful you are, how friendly you are, how intelligent you are, how talented or beautiful or athletic or, or whatever it is, right? So you live for the approval of others and you sanctified their approval as Lord in your heart and you empower them to become everybody. Everybody then becomes your Lord and judge. And your well-being is completely dependent on complete strangers, who get to value your worth. They get to say whether or not you measure up or are worthwhile. And you fear their rejection and the removal of their affection. To honor Christ the Lord as holy in your heart means to simply tell yourself the truth. No human has the power to affirm or remove your dignity. Whatever they say about you, whatever they do to you. Your dignity comes from God. You were created in the image of God, not Bob or Mary or Julio or whoever it is you're looking to, to to give you the approval and affirmation of your well-being, right? You were created in the image of God and only God determines your dignity, your honor, your well-being. So to honor Jesus as Lord, as holy in our hearts means to uncover the lies that we believe and replace them with the truth. It means that you reject giving God power to things that aren't God. And here's the thing. When you do that, you will be freed progressively more and more from your fear of man. Because people will not have the power to give you what you truly need, and people will not have the power to take away what only God can give. And you will discover as you are freed from your fear of man, the fear of God. The Bible has a lot to say about the fear of God. Always positive. <laughs> Always positive. It says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, not the end result, the beginning. Like you can't even take the first step down the path of wisdom until you've started discovering the fear of God. Now, when the Bible talks about the fear of God, it's not talking about trembling fear of judgment. It does sometimes. And it's not to say that, that God's not a holy God who, who will judge and bring justice to the world. He, he will. But what we're talking about as followers of Christ is not a, a trembling fear of judgment, but a deep respect and awe at the power and the character of God. The kind of fear that recognizes that you are coming into the presence of the author of life. The one who not only created you, but the one who holds you together with the word of his power. The one who has the power to completely undo you or completely bless you. But God, with all of that power, chooses to love you. Chooses to bless you. Chooses, in fact, to take upon himself the consequences of your bad choices so that you can be reconciled to him and to the rest of life. See, as you address your heart's affections with the truth of the gospel, you will be freed into the 
the beauty of being more afraid, more awestruck, more filled with respect and love for God than you are for yourself and for people around you. You will be freed to a radical new kind of hope. So to be a good ambassador, we don't share their fear. And we do that by not sharing their Lord, right? We, we sanctify, we set apart Jesus as Lord, as holy in our hearts. And we do that um, to share a unique hope. And that is what being an ambassador is, is sharing the unique hope we have in the gospel. <clears throat> Here's the thing. There's no more compelling case for our faith than genuine hope. There's no more compelling case for our faith in Christ being, than being people that are filled with, with transformative hope. Take a look at, at verse 15. In verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is within you. That word defense, the Greek word apologia, is the word that we get our English word apologetics from. Apologetics are... are uh, it, it's normally a religious word. It's not always. It can be used in a number of contexts. It means a reasoned and careful defense of a position or an idea. So when you put together an apologetic, what you're doing is, is you're putting together a, a series of, of reasoned and careful defenses um, that support an idea or a proposition, right? What Peter is saying is, is, is um, first of all, don't have their fears. Instead, replace the lies in your heart with the truth of the gospel, Be freed from the fear of man and freed to the fear of God, and this will fill you with a crazy hope. (laughs) I mean, think about it. Did Stephen's hope seem crazy to Saul and to the others that were watching? There was a hope there they didn't understand, and probably a hope there that intrigued them, a hope that either made Stephen into a absolute lunatic nut or somebody who knew something they didn't know. It fills you with a crazy hope, the kind of hope that comes from resurrection, the kind of hope that comes from a God who recreates, the kind of hope that comes from a God who has broken into the human story to retell that story as a story of redemption and restoration, the kind of story in which death is not final and failure does not define us. He's saying, be ready as good ambassadors of Christ to make a careful and reasoned defense, apologetic for your hope. You guys, the best apologetic, the best defense of the gospel is a life undone by the gospel. The absolute best apologetic for grace is a life undone by grace. Um, Before I was a believer, man, I had a lot of people try to tell me I needed to be a Christian. And, and honestly, what kept me from, from listening and responding to them more times than not was the fact that I simply didn't like them. <laughs> Bottom line, they were jerks. I was, I was, my mom had stuck me in a Christian school. I wasn't a believer. And the teachers were somewhat hostile toward me as an unbeliever. And I think somewhat 
Some of them were somewhat threatened by my questions and by my challenging. And I got to admit, I was a bit of a jerk. I can be, right? But that doesn't mean there weren't actual sincere issues behind my questions. And I walked out of that situation pretty much convinced that Christianity was plastic. That was my term at the time. I, I, way back when, when I wrote a journal, I, I thought of it as plastic fruit, this thing that promised something that couldn't deliver. Something that looked like it was going to be really good from a distance, but the closer you got, the more you realized it was just a bunch of people pretending. And I didn't want anything to do with it. You know what actually opened my heart? And I can, I can get up here and get all intellectual and talk about all my study and all my reading. and all, You know what actually opened my heart to the gospel? A 59-year-old man, my freshman year in college, who was the embodiment of a life undone by grace. He just reached out to me. He developed a friendship with me. He listened to me. He sought to understand me. A 59-year-old freshman, I was 17 years old. A little bit of a gender gap. I mean, a gender, age gap. There wasn't a gender gap there. (laughs) Might as well have been. I mean, honestly, it was that. I mean, this guy had a bow tie. He wore a bow tie in the 80s. Like, now that's like hipster cool. Back then, it just was weird. I mean, he was like Orville Redenbacher. And and I was, I had a, a mullet mohawk thing, and I had a skateboard, and this guy tried to understand me and reach out to me and develop a relationship with me and love me. And I started asking real questions because I trusted him. And I started listening. And he pointed me to the Bible, and I went to the Bible, and I read it, and God broke my heart. You guys, the best apologetic for grace is a life undone by grace. The next best apologetic for grace is a tongue freed by grace. This guy didn't just model Christianity to me. He told me about Jesus. He pointed me to the source of his hope. What good would it have done me if I had just been like, yeah, he was a friendly, nice old man who was a pleasant companion my freshman year in college, and then he died my sophomore year, because he did. It wasn't just that he was the presence of the grace of God. He spoke of the grace of God. You guys, when you love others, you will make a compelling case for your hope because you want them to share in it. I have found that people have two fundamental basic questions. We're talking about apologetics. They have two fundamental basic questions about the faith. Is it real? And does it work? Is it real? And does it work? What do they mean by these two questions? That's actually going to depend on the person. And that's where you have to listen and find out. You have to actually have conversations with people and ask them questions and listen to them, right? Some people, what they mean by that is is they have questions about the text. Is the text trustworthy? Could you really trust this book above all other books, right? Uh, Are these texts historically reliable? Some people have questions about Jesus. Did he really exist? Uh, What was his life all about? What did he actually say, right? People are going to have different questions. But honestly, the most powerful question people are asking today is, does it work? We live in in a time where... People are spiritually pragmatic, which makes them both closed and open to the hope of the gospel. They just want to know if it works. They want to know how it works for you. What does it do? How is it changing your life? How is it setting you free? How is it better? And what will it do for them? 
Here's the thing, you guys. When we're talking about being good apologists, good ambassadors who can make an answer or defense for the hope that is within us, you don't have to be ready to answer every question. Some people spend all of their time getting ready to answer every question they'll never be asked. They are an encyclopedia of apologetic information, just waiting for someone to ask the questions they never ask. That, that's not what we're being asked to do, right? You don't have to be afraid, right? You're like, well, what if they ask me about Mithras? I'm afraid. I've heard of this guy, right? What, what if they ask me about the gospel of Thomas? What if they ask me about carbon dating and the God particle? If they do, learn something, right? If they ask. But you know, the reality is most people aren't asking these questions. Don't be afraid of the questions people aren't asking. Don't be afraid of the things you aren't sure about or don't know because you're not going to have every answer. If these are the questions that your friends are asking, you should be loving and humble enough to let them know that you don't know all the answers, but you'll learn with them. That you'll dig in right? That's the humble confidence of the gospel. It allows us to assert what we're confident of and, and humble about what we don't and, and a willingness to dig in and, and say, let's, let's answer these questions together, right? As ambassadors for Christ, it is our commission to live the gospel and share the gospel and to make a compelling case for our faith. And that means letting people see the hope that's within us, and speaking of the hope that is within us. According to verse 15 at the very end, it says we're to do this gently and respectfully. Gently and respectfully. Gently means that we need to do it with love and not arrogance. Some people, honestly, the reason people won't listen to the gospel through them is because of them. How ironic is it that anyone would grow arrogant in their understanding of God? How absolutely ludicrous and idiotic is it that anyone would grow arrogant, condemning, and feel superior to others because they think they know more about God when the reality is the only reason they know anything is by the grace of God. And what little they do know is simply given to them by the God of grace so that they might know and worship him. We are to be gentle. We are dealing with people's souls, so we need to be careful. We need to listen more than we talk We need to listen to their desires and their hopes. We need to listen to to their fears, their hurts, their history, and their hopes. We need to love them enough to know them. People are not targets, and they are not projects. Whether they follow Christ or not, they are created in the image of God and deserve from us the respect and love due to those who are in the image of our God. We need to carefully think about how the good news is good news to them. To not just give them a list of propositions and challenge them and then walk away and say, well, I've done my duty. We need to know them well enough to know where their pain points are and and then actually do the hard work of thinking, how is the good news good news to them? The word for uh, respectful, or to be gentle and respectful, is the Greek word phobos, fear. And every time that it's used in the New Testament that I have found, in a positive sense, it, it is speaking about fear of God. And I think that's its context here. We need to be gentle toward the people we're working with and operating in the fear of God. We need to make our case known, knowing that we are completely dependent on the God who has entrusted to us the message. It's his work, it's his message, it's his power. And that means that even as we are seeking to live it out and share it, we should be doing it absolutely humbly and prayerfully. 
dependent on the God who has commissioned us to do it. All right, as we wrap up, I want to share 10 simple steps that Tim Keller suggests for every day, being good every day um, um, ambassadors. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with these, but I found them compelling and helpful. So I'm going to run through these quickly. Simple everyday steps that we can take to share our faith. Kind of share them with you as we wrap up, let you think about it. First of all, let people around you know that you're a Christian in a natural, unforced way. I'm going to put these on the city, by the way. So if you're on the city, you don't need to write them all down. I'll I'll publish it for you. It's funny how many people trip up right here. (laughs) They just have a hard time being honest up front. They start hiding who they are, and they start hiding their faith. Why? Fear of man. Just up front, let people know you're a believer. Use the same language around unbelievers you do around believers. If you're thinking, hey, I'm going to pray about that, feel free to say out loud, hey, I'm going to pray about that. And if people are like, oh, you pray. Yeah, I do. I believe in Jesus, okay? Just be up front. It just means being authentic, being the same person you are in all settings, right? Just let people know around you that you're a Christian in a natural and forced way. Just, just be yourself. Secondly, ask friends about their faith. And then just listen. Don't feel like everyone has to be a conversion project and don't feel like you have to share the gospel in a single conversation every time you do it. You really will be weird if that's what you try to do. Ask questions and listen. Find out about their faith. Find out about their spiritual journey. Find out about where they are with the true intent of getting to know them and caring about them. Thirdly, listen to your friend's problems and perhaps offer to pray for them. It's very simple. People want to be cared for. People want to be known. People want to know that you actually value them, right? And and so get the weirdness out where it's, oh man, I got to do this right now. It's my great, just know them and love them. And hey, listen to their problems. Help them process their situation. Offer them gospel solutions as you're able. Offer to pray for them. Fourthly, share your problems with others. Testify how your faith helps you. Don't be the guy who feels like you have to have it all together. Well, I'm a follower of Jesus. I can't have problems. Really? Have you read the New Testament? Do you know anybody who that's their story? For real and like authentically? No. Be real about who you are. Talk about your struggles. Be as open about your struggles as they are about theirs. And invite them into it. But show them how you're processing it. And testify how your faith is helping you through your problems. Fifthly, feel free to give them a book. Now, by the way, steps one through four are a great place to start. And as you build relationship and you find that there's an invitation to further relationship, you can move on to these next steps, right? Give them a book to read, a book that is sourced in a, in a biblical worldview, a book that's going to help them, maybe a book that's directly related to one of their struggles or problems they've shared with you. And you're like, man, this is going to be really helpful or encouraging to you. Something that has spoken to you and, and, and powerfully encouraged you, share it with them so that it can speak to them and powerfully encourage them, Right? Do you want to jump straight to giving them a book before you have a conversation with them? No, <laughs> that's just weird, right? Then you're like the Moonies in the airport, just handing out flowers and saying, here's, here's literature. You want to know people and love people and, and actually give them information that is relevant to who they are and where they are. Six, share your story. How God led you to himself and has changed your life. That very simply is old school testimony time, right? But it's just being willing to share. I was lost and now I'm found. I was broken, but God loves me. And uh, man, this is changing my life. Secondly, I mean, seventhly, answer objections to and questions about Christianity. As you move more deeply into conversations with people, you will find they have technical questions. 
They want to know if it is reasonable and rational. So you need to be prepared to have those conversations. And as you're having those conversations, be willing to do some study. Read some great material from brilliant people that will equip you to actually be able to have intelligent conversations and intelligent answers to the questions that are around you. People like Tim Keller, C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there that we can be reading that will speak to this, right? Eighthly, invite them to a church event, um, like a Sunday meeting or a community group gathering or a Bible study, right? Um, as you're moving into a relationship with people and you find that their interest is peaked and they're growing in their interest, what a great opportunity to actually invite them into Christian community, right? Often community is more powerful than a solo voice anyway. So you invite them into a relationship with others so that they can actually start moving into and tasting the, the community of believers. Nine, offer to read the Bible with them. This could be a Bible study, or it can really just be, let me just open this up and help you find your way through this book. It's weird. And you may not even know where to start, right? First time I opened the Bible, I had no idea. I mean, I didn't know anything, right? And a lot of people are there. They're like, I don't even know where to start. So maybe you just offer to, to open it up and, and help them start reading it and discussing it, right? Tenth, help them find resources that systematically help them explore Christianity. That can be online. It can be printed material. Um, it can be a class, right? But you're not going to jump straight to nine and ten. You're not going to have any success there. Build relationships. Find out where God's opening doors. Love people for who they are. And then just see where it takes you and move boldly through the process. All right, you guys. So as we move into our time of response, um, we're going to put some questions on the screen. I'm going to ask you to pray about and and do some reflection over, think about. Um, I want to let you know as well, we would love to get the response cards that are in your bulletin. If you have prayer requests or thoughts, um, fill those out, especially if you're uh, a guest with us. maybe a first-time visitor, fill us out. Let us know you were here. And, um, uh, and if you wouldn't mind, let us know how you found out about us, uh, whether it was a personal invite or through some other means, we would love to know. You can drop those cards in the um, boxes that are by the door, the baskets by the door or the boxes that are up by um, the communion. If you're um, a first-time guest with us, we, we do have a gift for you at Connection Point. Feel free to visit, and we would just love to honor you for, for visiting with us. Don't worry, we're not going to get weird. Um, so some questions for you to consider as we move into our time of response. First of all, how is the fear of man hindering your ability to be a good ambassador for Christ? How is the fear of man hindering your ability to be a good ambassador for Christ? Your fear of suffering or your fear of potentially suffering, right? Secondly, in what ways do you need to honor Christ the Lord as holy in your heart so that you can be freed from those fears? so that you can allow the truth of the gospel to free you um, from a very short-sighted, materialistic view of the world that keeps you from living for the age to come. And thirdly, who is God calling you to pray for? And reach out to Him. Who is God putting on your heart to love? With the grace of the gospel and, and with the message of the gospel. Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response, and we'll share communion in a moment. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. And that even as you commission us to share this incredible message, it is your plan to change us with this message. That you want to, as we step out in faith, to prove yourself faithful. As we step out in a boldness to to undercut the lies that feed our fears, you want to strengthen the truth that gives us joy. So I pray for myself and I pray for my friends that we would be bold in the gospel, bold for ourselves, bold for our friends. 
that we would have an eternal perspective that allows us to approach our families and our jobs and our money and, and, and our community involvement and our work with social justice and our art and, and everything that we would just recognize that you are recreating us for something so glorious and so good that it will give us perspective on here and now.